Greetings and welcome to my podcast, Algonquin Defining Moments. This is your host, Gay Clemson, oral history author, storyteller, and lover of all things Algonquin Park. As you know, I've researched and written extensively over the last 20 years about the human history of Algonquin Park, which I'm really having a lot of fun sharing with you. Before I begin, I wanted to take a moment to ask that you consider becoming both an Algonquin Defining Moments and a Wildlife Research Station patron. In this way, you could support both my Algonquin Park human history storytelling efforts and all of the wildlife research that takes place at the WRS. Both are amazingly worthy causes, though I am, of course, biased, as I'm sure you can imagine. But if instead you'd rather just buy a t-shirt or coffee mug, doing either is easy. On both of our websites are Become a Patron or Support Us buttons, and in the case of Algonquin Park Heritage, a Gifts and Gear button for merch. Thanks in advance for your support. It is very much appreciated. So I was wandering through eBay a few months ago and came across this little booklet called Reports on the Algonquin National Park of Ontario for the year 1893. Intrigued, I bought it and subsequently discovered that I had found this little gem that I'm about to share with you. Digitized in 2013 by the Internet Archive, it looks like the original documents were donated to Queen's University by Edith and Lauren Pierce, and now reside in the W.D. Jordan Rare Books and Special Collections. As a side note, Dr. Lauren Pierce, who was born in 1890 and died in 1961, and his wife, Edith Chown, whom I presume Chown Hall at the university is named after, started donating books to Queens in 1925, and through them Queens became an internationally known center for Canadian studies. According to the Queens University website, their collection now contains over a hundred thousand items. Dr. Pierce, an ordained minister, devoted his life to the promotion of Canadian literature. He was a founding member of the Canadian Authors Association, the Bibliographical Society of Canada and the Art Gallery of Ontario, a member of the Champlain Society and the Arts and Letters Club, a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada, and the literary executor for Canadian poet Bliss Carman. Anyway, this book was published by the Lagar Street Press, whom it seems like to publish works that have been selected by scholars as being culturally important and are part of the knowledge base of civilization as we know it. As printed on the back, and I quote, scholars believe and we concur that this work is important enough to be preserved, reproduced, and made generally available to the public. It also went on to thank me as purchaser of it for, quote, being an important part of keeping this knowledge alive and relevant. With this in mind, I hope you are by now wondering what on earth this collection is which I'm referring to. Well, it turns out that this little booklet includes the original January 1894 report from Mr. Peter Thompson, the first Algonquin Park Chief Ranger. It documents his original trip through the park in the summer of 1893. It also includes a follow-on report by Mr. James Wilson, who was superintendent of Queen Victoria Niagara Falls Park. Both of these reports were submitted by A.S. Hardy, who was at the time commissioner of the Department of Crown Lands. 
and they were sent to Lieutenant Governor of the Province of Ontario, the Honourable George Airy Kirkpatrick, in March of 1894. Now, over the years, I've seen quotes by both of these protagonists, but never have I seen the original documents. Both are amazing, and so in the spirit of keeping this knowledge alive and relevant, I'd like to share both in their original form with you now. Best, I think, to settle down in a nice soft chair with your favorite libation, close your eyes and imagine what it must have been like to journey through what was then called Algonquin National Park for the first time. To his honor, the Honorable George Airy Kirkpatrick, Lieutenant Governor of the Province of Ontario. Sir, I beg to submit herewith for the information of your honor and the Legislative Assembly the following reports, one by Mr. Peter Thompson, Chief Ranger, and the other by Mr. James Wilson, Superintendent of the Queen Victoria Niagara Falls Park, in connection with the Algonquin National Park of Ontario. Mr. Thompson's report gives a brief account of the preparatory and other work done in the park since it was set apart by the Act of the Legislative Assembly last year. Mr. Wilson, who has had long experience as superintendent of the Queen Victoria Park at Niagara Falls, was requested to visit the park in the autumn of last year and made a report thereon. In his report, Mr. Wilson gives an interesting description of the portions of the park traversed by the principal waterways and also makes a number of suggestions as to its management and administration. On the map accompanying his report, the position of the park headquarters, shelter huts, is indicated. The Algonquin National Park Act, 56 Victoria, Chapter 8, is given in full so that the objects for which the park was established, the conditions under which it is administered, the penalties for hunting or trespassing therein, may be more widely known. Respectfully submitted, A.S. Hardy, Commissioner, Department of Crown Lands, Toronto, 1st of March, 1894. The Honorable A.S. Hardy, Commissioner of Crown Lands, Toronto. Sir, I beg to submit the following report in connection with the Algonquin National Park of Ontario from its inception up to the end of 1893. On being appointed Chief Ranger of the Park, 21st of July last, I received instructions from yourself to proceed thither in company with Mr. James Dixon, OLS, and to begin at once the erection of a house for headquarters and a number of small shelter lodges in various portions of the park for the accommodation of the rangers while on duty. Having made arrangements for the purchase of such provisions, tools, etc., as would be required, I left for the park on the 23rd of July. I was joined at Aridalia by Mr. Dixon, and on reaching Huntsville we found the supplies from Toronto together with four canoes and three tents, which Mr. Dixon had previously procured and forwarded from Peterborough. Messrs. Stephen Waters of Huntsville, William Gial of Port Sydney, and Timothy O'Leary of Uttergrove reported for duty here, having been appointed as under-rangers for the season on trial. The party was completed by the engaging of Robert Dinsmore of Huntsville and William Morgan of Port Sydney 
as carpenters and builders, and Samuel Barr of Fenland Falls as assistant. After packing our outfit, we proceeded from Huntsville to Dwight. On arriving at the latter place, we transported our effects by wagon to Oxtongue Lake, seven miles distance, and thence continued our journey in canoes up the Muskoka River to Canoe Lake in the township of Peck, which we reached on the 2nd of August, making no less than 15 portages en route. At a point on the north side of Canoe Lake, we determined to build our headquarters, the lot chosen being the south half of 19 in the second concession of Peck. After setting the men to clear the place, get out the timber, etc., Mr. Dixon and myself, accompanied by one of the rangers, set out on a trip of inspection for the purpose of locating sites for the shelter lodges and of obtaining an idea of the connections of the various water systems of the park. We returned after a week's absence, having gone as far as Great Opiongo Lake on the east and Cedar Lake on the north, and touching on most of the lakes lying between. Shortly afterwards, Mr. Dixon returned to Toronto. The house at headquarters was finished about the latter part of August. It is a substantial, hewed log building, 21 by 28 feet, with hewed timber floor and scoop roof, we selected this site for headquarters because of its accessibility to Canoe Lake and the chain of waters of which this lake forms a part, its nearness to the proposed lines of railway from Arnprior to Perry Sound, and also because of the fine grove of balsam, spruce, and a few pine trees which stood upon it. During the absence of myself and staff in October, the employees of Messrs. Gilmore and Company, who own the pine timber in this part of Peck, built a lumber camp, doubtless through some misunderstanding, immediately alongside and within 10 or 12 feet of our headquarters. They also entered the grove and took out the pine, at the same time cutting down a great number of other trees and marring the beauty of the place, which I had hoped to preserve. During the course of the summer and fall, we erected, in addition to headquarters, 15 shelter lodges on previously selected sites throughout the park. Following are the situations of same. Number 1. Cache Lake, north side of Madawaska River, Lot 5, Concession 6, Canis Bay. Number 2. North side of Lake of Two Rivers, southeast corner, Lot 30, Concession 8, Canis Bay. Number 3. West side of South Bay of Great Opiongo Lake, Township of Spruill, half a mile west of mouth of Mud Creek. Number four. Southernmost point of Southeast Bay of Great Opiongo Lake, Township of Preston. Number five. South side of Head of McDougall Lake at entrance of Opiongo River, Township of Preston. Number six. North end of Burnt Lake at mouth of Petawawa River, Lot 27, Concession 1, Osler. Number 7. North side of Great Opiongo Lake, Lot 22, Concession 7, Bower. Number 8. North side of Little Nipissing, Branch of Petawawa, Lot 30, Concession 10, Lister. Number 9. East end of Cedar Lake, near mouth of Petawawa River. Lot 13, Concession 7, Deacon. Number 10, 
foot of Horseshoe Lake, township of Boyd immediately adjoining north boundary of Lister. Number 11, south side of Cochon Lake, lot 34, concession 6, Pentland. Number 12, head of Mink Lake, lot 22, concession 7, Pentland. Number 13, north side of Keoshkokwe Lake, near head of Amable Dufon River. Number 14, Grass Bay, White Trout Lake, Lot 13, Concession 13, McLaughlin. Number 15, East Side of Island Lake, Lot 16, Concession 16, McLaughlin. These shelter lodges or huts are erected at such points as will be convenient for the purpose of preventing the entrance of poachers and trespassers into the park and will command the passage from one chain of waters to another, as well as other lakes or waters within a radius of half a day's journey. They vary in distance from one another from seven to ten miles, the limit being a day's journey on snowshoes in winter. The lodges are of a uniform size of 14 by 16 feet, and are made of unhewed logs and covered with handmade shingles. There is no sawn lumber used in their construction. Each has a door and a window of four panes of glass, and inside are a small table and sleeping berths for four men. A small sheet iron stove, made specially for the purpose, will be placed in each. The outlay for labor, which is almost the only item of cost of these lodges, was perhaps from twenty to twenty-five dollars apiece. In erecting them, as well as the larger house at Canoe Lake, we not only had to find our raw material in the forest, but we were obliged to haul the logs by hand, frequently for considerable distances. As will be seen, the lodges built so far are mainly in the southern, central, and eastern portions of the park. In order to provide a chain of communication to and from all parts of the park, and to permit an efficient patrol being kept up summer and winter, a number of additional lodges will be required in the northern and western sections. It was necessary to spend considerable time and trouble in cutting trails and clearing portages along the lines of water communication from one shelter lodge to another. In all, we cut out upwards of 25 miles of portages and trails and cleared many stretches of river and creek beds from floating timber, brush, and other obstructions in order to secure free passage for our canoes. I may say that I have found a tendency on the part of the public in general, and more particularly, of men who have been in the habit of hunting and trapping in the territory, now included in the park, to acquiesce in the new state of things. I came in contact with a number of trappers who were removing their traps from the park, and who appeared to have given up any idea of further trapping there. While regretting the loss of their trapping grounds, they acknowledged that the fur-bearing animals were gradually becoming more scarce and recognized that the preservation of game and fur animals within the park would eventually be to their benefit, as the animals would increase in number and could be taken in their proper season outside the park limits. We found a trapper's camping ground on the north side of Horseshoe and Mink Lakes and seized several traps and a few beaver skins the man himself could not be found. This is the only violation of the law which came under my notice. 
During the hunting season, deer were several times pursued up to within a short distance of the park, but so far as I know, the chase did not extend into it. I received from the department notices printed on linen, warning hunters, trappers, and others against trespassing in the park. I had these nailed up at conspicuous places in the park, and also at points in the neighborhood where they would be seen and read. With regard to game, both moose and deer are plentiful, particularly in the northern and western townships of the park, notwithstanding the reckless slaughter of late years. In my opinion, there are as many moose as deer, and in the township of Butt, just outside the west boundary, the moose are very numerous. Signs of beaver are seen in various places, but the families appear to be small. In very many localities, where these animals have evidently existed in large numbers in times past, there is now no indication of their presence. There are, however, I am convinced, still sufficiently numerous to replenish the park, if properly protected for a few years. Mink, otter, fisher, and marten are plentiful, and muskrat abound. There are many bears and wolves. The former do little or no damage, but the wolves are very destructive to deer. The bonus of $10 per head for killing wolves does not seem to have had much effect in reducing their numbers, either here or in the surrounding country. Foxes are numerous, and prey upon the partridges. The latter are abundant, and wild ducks are often seen on some of the lakes. There are many shallow, soft-bottomed lakes that seem suitable for the growth of wild rice, the favorite food of ducks, which does not at present appear to occur in the park. The experiment of procuring some wild rice and sowing it in such places would be attended with very little cost. Following your instructions, I have taken steps to obtain a quantity of white pine seed in order that some experiments in forestry may be attempted. The water in the rivers and lakes in the park was last year unusually low. The snowfall this winter has so far been heavy, and up to the 31st of December, according to measurements made by myself, amounted to 55 inches. Messrs. Gilmore and Company, whose headquarters are at the foot of South Tea Lake, are carrying on extensive lumbering operations in Peck Township. They have built a dam at the lower end of this lake and have raised the water four feet. I understand that it is their intention to construct a dam at the foot of Joe Lake as well. Lumbering is also being conducted in the park by Messrs. Barnett and Company, Whitney and Company, Fraser and Company, and others, and I am pleased to say that from all these firms and their employees, I have experienced the best of treatment, and a general desire has been shown to cooperate with myself and staff in furthering the objects for which the park was established. I have the honor to be, sir, your obedient servant, Peter Thompson. Chief Ranger, Canoe Lake, Algonquin National Park of Ontario, 3rd January, 1894. Now, one of the things really interesting about that report, not only where all the shelter huts were, but also this idea that in passing, he just made a comment that the Gilmore brothers were going to build a dam that was likely to raise the water in the Canoe Lake area a good four feet. Why this happened and the ecological impact, I'll talk about in detail in another episode.
Now let's listen to Superintendent James Wilson's report. To the Honorable A. S. Hardy, Commissioner of Crown Lands, Dear Sir, In compliance with your request, I spent some time in the late autumn of last year in visiting the territory which has been set apart by the province as a national park and forest reservation under the title of the Algonquin National Park of Ontario. And in further compliance with your wishes, I beg to make some observations thereon, and also to offer a few suggestions in respect to its care and management. The territory set apart under the Act of 1893 comprises some 18 townships in the Nipissing District and covers an average breadth from east to west of nearly 36 miles, by an average of some 40 miles in length from north to south, or more correctly, two tiers of five townships on the west and two of four townships on the east. Chapter 1. Routes into the Park Access to the park is at present somewhat difficult, as it is remote from railway connection, and the only roads leading in from any direction are those which have been opened up by lumbermen to take in supplies to their winter camps. These are mere paths or trails through the woods, wretchedly made and, of course, very rough and tortuous. Huntsville, a station on the northern and northwestern branch of the Grand Trunk Railway, and distant 145 miles from Toronto, appears to be the best point of debarkation at present for any party going in from the south or west. From Huntsville there are two routes now available, one via Dorset on the Lake of Bays with a 22-mile drive over a newly opened lumber road to Gilmore's camp on South Tea Lake, or the old route via the North River, a branch of the Muskoka, by canoe from Dwight, also on Lake of Bays, to the same objective point. The latter route was the only one open to me, as the road from Dorset was not completed at the time of my visit. On the west side of the park, there is a lumberman's wagon road from Sundridge on the GTR, 37 miles north of Huntsville, leading into the depot of Messrs. Barnett on Burnt Lake, some 36 miles distant. On the north, a much-used wagon road enters from Dieu-Rivière on the Canadian Pacific Railway to the Hawkesbury Lumber Company's depot on Cedar Lake, some 24 miles, and another from Eau Claire, also on the CPR, to Cayas-Coqui Lake of nearly the same length. Besides these, there are said to be several wagon trails on the north, east, and south, but in all cases they are not desirable routes to travel over when it is possible to avoid them. As an instance, it may be stated that on some of these so-called roads, a load for a team is frequently limited to two barrels of pork. The only means of transportation in the park during the open season is afforded by canoes, and these must be had by intending tourists before proceeding inland. A supply of suitable provisions should also be provided, as it will not be possible to obtain these in the park, and a guide must be selected who is familiar with the ground to be traveled over. Possibly a brief outline of the tour I was able to make through the park may prove of interest, and at the same time it will afford me an opportunity of dealing with questions related to the property 
or its management as they were presented from time to time en route. Section 2, Huntsville to Canoe Lake Through the good offices of Dr. Howland of Huntsville, a good canoe man who had hunted and trapped over some of the ground now included in the park, and who could therefore act as guide, was secured at that place, and the pack got ready. On October 31st, we started in by steamer up ferry and peninsula lakes to Portage, where passengers and baggage are transferred over to Lake of Bays, a distance of one mile. Lake of Bays is a fine sheet of water reaching out its arms into five townships. It has two steamers, plying from Portage on the north to Baysville on the south, Dorset on the east, and Dwight on the northeast. In this instance, in order to get to Dwight, the steamer ran down the whole length of the lake to Baysville, remained there overnight, and returned up the lake in the morning. This necessitated a late start from Dwight, a small hamlet on the confines of settlement, which since my visit has been favored with telegraphic communication with the outer world. From Dwight, there is a seven-mile portage to Oxtongue Lake, and a team can be had to portage canoes and packs across. Two and a half hours are required for this service. There are a few scattered settlers on the Oxtongue Lake, which lies in the township of McClintock, but beyond this there is no habitation of any kind, excepting at a few points in the park, where a lumberman's depot has been established, and at Manitou Lake, where there is a settler. Thirty minutes paddling on Oxtongue Lake, and the mouth of the North River is entered. North River, so-called, is one of the principal branches of the Muskoka, and at this point is a winding stream of dark water some three chains in width. Forty minutes of paddling against the stream and ragged falls is reached, where there is a short but steep portage, over which the canoes and pack must be carried. At this place, a timber slide has been newly erected by Messrs. Gilmore to facilitate the driving of logs from their timber limits in the park on towards the company's mills at Trenton on Lake Ontario. Less than half an hour's paddling from the head of Ragged Falls and the long portage at High Falls is reached. This portage requires fully 30 minutes to pack over when the loads are light and can be carried in one trip. When several trips are necessary, much time may be required before all is ready for a new start. Beyond High Falls, at which place also the Gilmores have built a slide, there is a long reach of river with numerous small portages or liftouts, and requiring fully six hours of continuous work at the paddles before the west boundary of the park is gained. From this point, there is another hour's hard work to get to the outlet of South Tea Lake, where the Gilmores have erected a new and extensive lumber camp and supply depot. At this point is the chief center of their timber limit and the starting point for the river drive of logs. A substantial dam with sluiceway has been built, by means of which the water level of the lakes draining into the North River at this point can be raised several feet and the quantity of water passing down the river regulated to suit the requirements of the drive. South Tea Lake is near the southwest corner of the park. It is a beautiful sheet of water some two miles in length. Its broad, smooth waters and expanding scenery afford a welcome change to the tourist after battling with the long and torturous river 
from Oxtongue Lake. This lake is connected with Canoe Lake by another reach of the North River. Section 3, the Park Headquarters. Canoe Lake is a more pretentious sheet of water than South Tea Lake and has been selected for the site of the headquarters of the park rangers. Headquarters consist of a well-built log shanty, 21 by 28 feet in dimensions, with a good floor and roof, standing well up from the level of the lake. Six sleeping berths of the customary lumber shanty pattern are ranged along one end of the single room, and a sheet iron stove affords rather inadequate facilities for cooking and other general purposes. Sheds for storage of canoes and for firewood will, of course, be built in due time. The site for headquarters was chosen on account of its position, commanding the route to the chains of waters which lie to the north and east, and is convenient on that account, and also for the facilities it has of getting in supplies and mail matter when the lumber camps are in commission, as it is distant, but an hour and a half by water from the depot on South Tea Lake. Another reason which probably weighed in the selection was the projected location of the Arn Prior and Perry Sound Railway near to its northern shore. This railway, if built as proposed, would bring this part of the park into more immediate connection with the outer world and would therefore require special supervision on the part of the park rangers. As, however, the park domain is entered on every side by hunters and trappers, some of whom have for many years followed their calling on the margin of its streams and waters, it will probably be found desirable to have the chef-lieu move to a point nearer to the center of the territory. Before Wilson and his party head north of Canoe Lake, I think it's time for a musical interlude. Here's a piece called Forest Song from Dan Gibson's Solitude's Algonquin Suite CD. It focuses on many of the sounds of Algonquin nature so familiar to us all.
Northwards from Canoe Lake and still following the main branch of the Muskoka River, there is a series of waters known as Joe, Little Joe, and Island Lakes, the last name about five miles in length and two in extreme width, though a very irregular shape. In point of fact, all the lakes in the park are of irregular outline, and many of them are extremely torturous. From Island Lake, a short portage over the height of land circumscribing the Muskoka waters, leads into Little Otterslide Lake, one of the headwaters of the Great Petawawa River, which drains almost one-half of the territory comprising the park, and flowing eastward empties into the Ottawa River at the head of Alumet Island. Little Otterslide and Otterslide's lakes are connected by a broad stream without rapids, but there's a very rough bit of river from Otterslide to White Trout Lake, and a four-mile portage to Grassy Bay, which, notwithstanding its many discomforts and severe labor, is frequently made in preference to following the course of the stream. Section 4. The Petawawa and Amable du Four Lakes. From White Trout Lake, there's a magnificent chain of navigable waters with comparatively few portages intervening extending to the northeast angle of the park. And from these, across the northerly end of the park to and beyond its westerly limits. This chain embraces white trout, longer, red pine, burnt, pearly, catfish, narrow, cedar, little cochon, and cochon lakes, all in the Petawawa series of waters, and mink, keoshqui, Manitou and the two tea lakes are on the Amable du Fond series. There are but three portages on the whole of this noble reach of waters that can be considered in any way objectionable. One of these is at the Five Mile, on the Petawawa between Narrow and Cedar Lakes, where there is a somewhat trying portage of a mile and a half. The other two are between Kayashkokwi and Manitou Lakes and are each about three-quarters of a mile in length. All the others, including the one over the height of land separating the two water systems, are comparatively easy, 
and are rather welcome than otherwise to the tourist, as they afford a chance to stretch the limbs after the cramped position incidental to a canoe journey. The western boundary of the park crosses the tea lakes at their point of junction. From an examination of the accompanying map, it will be observed that the route outlined above closely follows the main course of the waters of the Petawawa and the Amable du Fond. There are numerous streams and rivers flowing into this main channel that are well worthy of being visited. In fact, the territory is literally covered with lakes and ponds of great natural beauty, but the time at my disposal forbade lingering, as the lateness of the season and the constant prospect of frost threatened at any time to close up the only means of communication. As it was, a good deal of time was lost in breaking a channel for the canoes through the ice on some of the sheltered streams. Section 5. White Trout to Great Abiongo Retracing our way to the outlet of White Lake, a new course was taken in order to see the Great Abiongo Lake. Traversing a bad portage of some three miles, we reach Merchant's Lake, another of the headwaters of the Petawawa, and a very pretty sheet of water some two miles long. A short portage over the height of land from Merchant's Lake and Green Lake is reached, another beautiful basin, whose sandy shores present a pleasant contrast to the rugged rocky outlines so generally characteristic of these inland waters. Green Lake is the extreme northerly source of the great Madawaska River, which drains a very extensive reach of country to the east and south of the park, and finally enters the Ottawa River at Arn Prior. The outlet from Green Lake is very rough, and a long portage of some two miles is necessary in order to reach the Great Abiongo Lake. This is the largest sheet of water in the park and is truly a noble expanse of many square miles in extent. From north to south, its extreme limits embrace some 12 miles, while in width it measures 7 miles at one point. The outlet is at the southeast angle, where a large stream carries its waters into McDougall Lake and thence to the east limit of the park, which is crossed at a point a couple of miles from the southern boundary several large lakes adding their quota to its volume near that point. Great Apiango Lake is very irregular in shape, the extensive east bay being separated from the main body of the lake by a narrows limited to a few feet in width, and the narrows dividing the north and south bays being but a few chains wide. The lake has numerous islands and presents many picturesque features. When seen in the hazy dawn of an Indian summer morning, its beauties make a lasting impression on the mind, even though the larder may be empty and one has to seek far for somewhat to stay the cravings of hunger. Great Apiango is not always safe for canoe navigation, as in fact is the case to a greater or less degree with all the larger lakes in the park. The great expanse of water gives scope to the wind so that frequently a few minutes suffice to change the surface from the proverbial sea of glass to foam-crested billows when the frail canoe must quickly find a haven of refuge or be swamped beneath the turbulent waters. Fortunately, 
The irregularity of outline already referred to usually affords an opportunity of shelter when storms arise, but escape is often protracted until the storm abates, as through all this territory the waterway is the only available route from place to place. Section 6, Great Opiongo, Back to Canoe Lake from the south end of Lake Opiango, the best-known route to the west is by a rough portage to Welcome Lake of about four miles, a trying ordeal even in November, when packs are heavy and the uneven ground wet and slippery. From Welcome Lake, the trail leads the west branch of the Madawaska at a point some distance above Whitefish Lake. En route, there is a series of small lakes with portages intervening of from one-quarter to three-quarters of a mile in length, some of them being difficult. Following the courses of the Madawaska, against the stream for two miles, Lake of Two Rivers is reached. Crossed it to the west end, about a mile and a half, the Madawaska is again followed for about ten miles to Cache Lake. At this part of its course, the Madawaska is a small stream and remarkably crooked. The distance measured in a straight line from Lake of Two Rivers to Cache Lake is not over four miles, while, as above stated, the course to be gone over is fully two and a half times that distance. Between Cache and Smoke Lakes, there are several large ponds or lakes, the chief one being Little Island Lake, a goodly-sized water with a large island in the middle. The four portages aggregate at about one mile in length, the last one being over the height of land dividing the Madawaska waters from those of the Muskoka. Smoke Lake has a length of about four miles and receives at its southern extremity the waters of Ragged Lake on the south boundary of the park, with its several tributaries and outflows into the north branch of the Muskoka via South Tea Lake. A half-mile portage leads from Smoke to Canoe Lake at its extreme southern limit whence it is but a two-mile paddle up the lake to headquarters. The lake scenery throughout is very beautiful. Each expanse of water has some charm, peculiarly its own. On every side, the forest primeval clothes the hills and mountains with verdure a varying hue down to the very shore. Deep shades are thrown across the dark waters of the lake, whose placid surface mirrors to perfection every outline of cloud or hill tree or rock, while the baby ripples from the bow of the canoe or the congeries of air bubbles from each stroke of the paddle glisten in the sunlight like diamonds or as the stars on a December night. To the tourist, the continual change from lake to river, from river to portage, and from portage to river and lake again make a delightful panorama which captivates the eye and the senses and provides abundant opportunity for the cultivation of the tastes in the study of all of the varying phases of the landscape, and impels a seeking after more perfect knowledge of the many varieties of animal and vegetable life which have their habitat in the territory. It may be mentioned, en passant, that the time required to make the trip outlined above and the beginning at Oxtongue Lake, where the canoe was put into the water and back to the same point, actually took 13 days to accomplish, or from 1st to 14th November. In summer, when the days are longer, less time would be required. 
the distance traveled was about 230 miles of canoe navigation and over 30 of land portages. All the lakes are well stocked with fish. Gray or lake trout, salmon and brook trout are the principal kinds found. Brook trout weighing from one pound to two pounds and the others varying from four pounds to 30 pounds or over. Large numbers of the young of these fish are annually destroyed by gulls and loons, and it might be advisable to consider the propriety of waging war upon the latter, as neither bird is of much commercial value, and their depredations largely outweigh other considerations. As a sidebar, and as I've mentioned in previous podcast episodes, thank goodness this idea of waging war on the loons never happened. Section 7 effects of lumbering in the park. One cannot proceed far upon park property without encountering some of the many evidences of the presence of the lumberman, and certainly at first sight the effect is depressing. All the lands embraced in the park limits are now covered with licenses to cut timber. In fact, pine timber has been cut on some of the territory for nearly 50 years, and on a very large area licenses were issued before Confederation. The southwest corner has been under license but two years. There are quite a number of firms who have an interest in the standing timber of these lands, and several of them are busily engaged in removing the timber, principally the pine. One firm, Messrs. Gilmore, have ten camps located on their limit, each camp numbering from 30 to 35 men. In all, probably 600 men may at the present time be at work lumbering in the park, and the total output representing this winter's work will certainly amount to many millions of feet. The felling of every pine tree means the maiming or destruction of several other trees, and the aggregate loss entailed by these operations in the forest wealth of the limits is very large. It must be understood that the pine is not totally cleaned out by the lumbermen, the specifications of the firms varying in respect to the size, but as a rule nothing less than 10 inches in diameter is taken. Doubtless on some of the limits every sound pine tree down to these dimensions will be removed. It will be many years before the park can, under existing contracts, be freed from these operations, so that any scheme for the preservation or development of supervision of the property must take the lumberman into account. This condition of affairs has, however, some redeeming features, one of these being the improvement of the waterways by the erection of dams at the outlets of the lakes and at some of the rapids or falls, the effect of which is to raise the level of the water and also by removing obstructions in the streams and rivers. The making of roads such as they are into the territory may also be mentioned, but the chief offset is the fact that the province realizes large revenues from the timber cut from year to year, as well as from the bonus paid at the time of granting the license. It must be steadily borne in mind that it is practically impossible to secure the preservation of the forest, although it be allowed to remain in a state of nature. No amount of precaution on the part of the authorities can guarantee total immunity from this destroyer, and one fire may cause more damage in a couple of days than an army of lumbermen in years. When the limits are under license, 
the assistance of the lumbermen in preventing and quenching fire is assured. The lumberman must be born with until all the limits are denuded of their merchantable pine, whenever that may be. Some portions of the park are now practically cleaned out, and abandoned lumbermen's camps, of which there are many, scattered throughout the park, are mute evidences of where his axe held sway. Section 8. How to Protect the Game With respect to the protection to be afforded the birds and animals now found in the park, it would appear from a careful consideration of the question that the only possible means at command for preserving these and giving them an opportunity to increase is to put down poaching with a strong hand. It will be absolutely necessary for some years to come, or until public sentiment has been aroused in sympathy with the objects in view on the part of those living in the confines of the park secured to strengthen the hands of the chief ranger by putting in a strong force of capable men as rangers or constables, men familiar with all the devious ways of the trappers, and who can be relied on to faithfully carry out their instructions. During my visit to the park, it was evident that the regulations were being disregarded, and while the rangers under Chief Thompson were busily engaged in the necessary work of getting shelters provided at different points in the wide field for the men when on patrol during cold or stormy weather, trappers were plying their vocation on the remote waters and escaping by the numerous trails to where a safe market for their catch could be had. The presence of large numbers of lumbermen, many of them more or less skillful in trapping, will add to the difficulty of the rangers in enforcing the regulations, particularly in the vicinity of the numerous camps. The constant communication by teams with the various supply depots for these camps will make the smuggling of a catch of furs from the park to market a comparatively easy matter. The force of rangers needed for the protection of the fur-bearing animals will be all the more necessary if the moose and deer are to be preserved. Undoubtedly, these noble specimens of animal life are becoming scarce, and it will be a matter of sincere and lasting regret if strong efforts are not made to prevent their practical extermination from this section of Ontario. To many men, it appears strange that with all our boasted civilization, these animals are still often wantonly slaughtered, even by so-called sportsmen. Hunting them with dogs and canoes in the vicinity of large waters can, at the best, be considered but a sorry sort of sport. Section 9. Park Limits Should Be Extended I am informed on reliable authority that the territory lying to the west of the present park limits has long been a favorite run for deer, more especially the townships of McCraney, Butt, and Paxton. Settlers in these townships are as yet few and far between, and I would assume the responsibility of suggesting to the commissioner that he consider the advisability of adding to the territorial limits of the park and range of townships on the west, via Ballantyne, Paxton, Butt, McCraney, and the eastern portion of Finlayson. The westerly line of these townships is the dividing line between the districts of Parry Sound and Nipissing, and will make a most desirable line of demarcation between the lands reserved for the park and the lands open to settlement. 
These townships are all in the height of land where deer are wont to roam, and where they seek shelter in stormy weather. Again, over considerable ranges of this territory, the waterways do not afford ready means of travel, and consequently fewer tourists and hunters invade it. Altogether, it would be a most desirable addition to the park domain, and unless there be very strong reasons why it should not be set apart for this purpose, its early designation as part of the reserve may be hoped for. Provision is made in the Park Act for such a proceeding. The southerly half, if not the whole of the township of Boyd, could also be with great advantage be added to the reservation. The principal chain of the north branch of the Petawawa waters, by which access is had to the fine range of the Amable du Fond waters on the northwest corner of the park, runs through this township and outside of the present limits of the park. For this reason, it would appear to be almost a necessity that this connecting link, which must form one of the main routes of the park rangers for all time, should be wholly within the park, a matter to which the attention of the commissioner is respectfully directed. From the fact that the townships above referred to were not embraced in the limits recommended by the royal commissioners appointed to report on the park project, it is assumed that there may be objections to including them, which may indeed possibly be insuperable. But on the other hand, there can be no manner of doubt that every square mile of territory added to the limits will favor the preservation of the deer and moose, and this result alone is well worthy of an effort to overcome surmountable difficulties. In addition to this result, however, all the aims had in view in the establishment of the park will be made more stable and secure. Section 10. Destruction of Noxious Animals Wolves are said to be very numerous in the park. They are the natural enemies of every desirable form of animal life. A determined effort should be made to destroy them, and to this end the energies of the rangers should be directed especially during the winter months, when the lakes are frozen over and poison may be readily used without endangering other forms of life. It may also be worth considering whether the bounty presently paid for the destruction of wolves within the province might not be increased with advantage. Bears and foxes should also be destroyed without mercy, and it is equally worthy of consideration whether a government bounty should not be paid for the heads of these pests. The Park Act provides that a special license may be issued by the Commissioner of the Crown Lands upon the recommendation of the Superintendent for the destruction of wolves, bears, and other wild and noxious animals. It would certainly be to the interest of the Park to take advantage of the provisions of the Act and secure a few good men for extra service in this way under the supervision of the Chief Ranger. Section 11. Accommodation for Rangers and Tourists Reference has been made to the necessity of removing headquarters from its present location on Canoe Lake. Were it not for the difficulty of getting in supplies, Great Apiango Lake would be an ideal location for this purpose. Quite likely, a route to the latter place may be found which would be reasonably favorable. But for the present, the wisdom of the choice of Canoe Lake can hardly be questioned. As, however, a new site must be selected, a fairly good one can be had at some point on the same lake but nearer to the south end, 
where a commodious building with the necessary sheds should be erected. I am decidedly of the opinion that in addition to headquarters on Canoe Lake, three substantial sub-depots should be built at points not remote from the four corners of the park, and if possible, easy of access for the purpose of getting in supplies, say at Apiango Lake on the east, and at Cayascoqui and Trout Lakes on the north, each of them to be fitted up for occupation by married rangers. A small piece of land in connection with each of these depots could be cleared for the raising of a few vegetables, and in time sufficient for the pasturage and maintenance of a cow. By this means, and with night shelters scattered over the territory at intervals of a day's journey apart, something like comfortable accommodations could be afforded the rangers, and the park more readily brought under a system of efficient patrol. Already, some 15 small night shelters have been put up at suitable locations. Others can be built from time to time as found to be needed. There is no question that the many attractions of the park will ere long be eagerly sought out by parties of tourists from all of the cities of Ontario. For many years, camping parties from Buffalo and Rochester have been visiting the territory and spending some time each season, reveling amid its health-giving charms, and doubtless the new and improved conditions will awaken a much wider interest and attract many others. For this reason, the design of the depot should provide some spare room for the shelter of tourists in case of need, until such time as hotel accommodation is provided, as well as the lodging of such of the rangers as may be required to rendezvous there from time to time. Food supplies might also be obtainable at the depot, under regulations of the chief ranger. At the foot of Manitou Lake, there is an Indian half-breed settler located who has a very intimate knowledge of the waterways of the park, that family having for generations hunted and trapped in this neighborhood. He is said to be a reliable man, having employment for some months of the year as fire ranger. As he has title to some land there, it may be a prudent course to designate him as an official guide for the benefit of the tourists who may wish to enter the park from the west. Possibly it would be desirable for the chief ranger to have authority to license guides to the park and have some sort of authority over them. In order to facilitate the movements of the rangers in patrolling the streams and rivers, I would suggest the advisability of the erection of simple timber dams at points where there are small rapids and shallows so as to reduce the length of the portages to a minimum. The larger portages to avoid rapids usually take a winding course away from the water, and consequently at present such portions are not readily examined by the rangers. Every additional bit of river that can be navigated by canoe will make the work of the rangers more effective, and at the same time the toil incident to the long portages will be avoided and their movements appreciably expedited. There were many places en route on the occasion of my visit where such work could be done but with little expenditure of labor, and doubtless on the side streams and inland waters where poachers will now cause most trouble. There are numerous instances which will present themselves to the chief ranger where such work would be of great assistance, particularly at periods of low water. The nomenclature of the lakes in the park requires revising, and it would be judicious to have this done authoritatively before maps of the territory 
on a reasonably large scale are published for the use of tourists and visitors. For instance, there are tea lakes at either extremity of the park, numerous wolf lakes, trout lakes, long lakes, etc., all of which is confusing to the visitor. Such maps should also show the position of all the portages to aid those who may venture into the territory without a guide. In conclusion, permit me to say that the map which accompanied this letter has been reduced from the maps of the several townships, and it should therefore be reasonably correct. Two of the townships have not been surveyed, and I have been unable to secure data for filling in the waterways on this portion. Possibly there may be some maps in the possession of the department, which will permit of this being done with tolerable accuracy. The map indicates the additional territory which I have taken the liberty of suggesting should be set apart for park purposes. I have the honor to be, sir, your obedient servant, James Wilson, Superintendent, Queen Victoria, Niagara Falls Park, Niagara Falls, February 1894. In closing, one of the things that I find to be so remarkable about Superintendent Wilson's report is not just the degree and type of prose that he uses to describe the environment that he is seeing, this, of course, is just as relevant today as it was nearly 130 years ago, but also it's his insights into topics that still trouble us today. These are such things as the effects of lumbering in the park, his suggestion to expand the park boundaries and move the headquarters to a more central location, his thoughts about the need to support in various ways the tourist influx, and, of course, his awareness that you have to proactively arouse public sentiment to support wildlife protection. Of course, the support for the total destruction of wolves is really hard to hear with the ear of 2022. But alas, it is a sentiment that still exists in some quarters, though often under the table and in the darkness of back rooms. His final comments of a need to revise the lake name nomenclature and to produce a detailed canoe routes map brought a smile to my face, although of course it was years later before Dr. Bell was hired to create such a thing. Both of these reports are indeed Algonquin defining moments. Until next time.